Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Mark Downey, who is a musician, blogger, and is currently a program manager on the Visual Studio team at Microsoft. Mark joins us today from Ohio in the United States. Mark Downey, we're so glad to have you on Maintainable. Thanks very much for having me. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software code? Matt, so for me, I think the, the one thing that kind of stands out is always the consistency of the code. It doesn't even matter so much for me whether it's uh, consistently bad or consistently good. I just like consistency in the code. And, you know, whatever design decision you have made to be kind of true to it and to Hope that stands out, because then at least whenever you think about maintaining it, you can think about the patterns that go into um, into that code and and look at it from a holistic standpoint very very easily. Um, so if one of the things I always kind of encourage in code that I'm associated with it that is is to make sure it's just at least consistent, and then we you know then we can have deeper philosophical discussions about whether that consistency is good or bad. But it certainly allows us to make the kind of changes wholesale if you need to, as long as you know what's what, what's there in the first place. Have you found yourself, you know, you talk about consistency, good or bad, uh, and you mentioned like design decisions. Does that also reflect when you're using frameworks or not? Do you find that when there are frameworks being used with the applications you might have encountered over your career? I'm also maybe making an assumption you might have worked on projects that didn't necessarily have a clear framework to work in, but has that been, do you, do you believe frameworks are helpful in that capacity or is it kind of similar challenges regardless? Yeah, no, I think frameworks kind of let you draw a kind of like a rough map of of the kinds of consistency I'm talking about, right? So, so you kind of lend from the the framework you run and you kind of use it to kind of make decisions that kind of send you in the right direction or maybe even a wrong direction depending on what you've, you've selected. Um, so the framework informs the, the architecture and the decisions and that kind of permeates the kind of design you want to create and and that kind of makes it that kind of influences decisions you make going forward. So yeah so I think that this the framework decision is the first big decision you make and that informs the kinds of consistency you're going to create. So it's, it's really important from my perspective that you really love the framework you've chosen in the first place. Because if, you, if, you, if your natural inclination is a design that works counter to your framework, then you kind of find yourself constantly fighting a battle, even if you don't necessarily recognize it at the surface, you kind of find yourself uh, fighting in battle. And that kind of leads to what I, what I think of in, as inconsistencies in code, where one style clashes with another or kind of works contrary to the other. So yeah, I think that framework decision is really important and making sure it sits well with, with your, your ideas and your design patterns. I would imagine that a lot of people listening might not always get to be part of that initial conversation or decision too. So when they're joining a project, they're like, well, who did, who decided we were going to use framework X versus Y, or why do we even use this framework? Or maybe this framework hasn't been significantly worked on in a couple of years and now it's outdated. And those developers are struggling to understand not only the framework, but just try to how to introduce their own approach and pattern into that kind of mix and can deviate or not? Yeah, to be sure. I think um, um, as I've been kind of, I've been helping maintain a project for, for, for a little while now. And I must admit, so 
we, we had to make a decision about this particular project. It was DOSBlog. It was it's one of the oldest .NET open source projects out there. I think it started running 2003. So it, it's it's like right at the inception of the .NET um, uh, movement, right, and, and, and framework. And so it was heavily dependent on web forms. And at the start of my career, that was I was really a good. I was an expert at web forms. But we just we turned for a variety of really good reasons. We no longer we, we no longer kind of. That's not the premier way which do it. Most people who are .NET and do web are probably doing some kind of MVC type uh, architecture using some kind of MCC type. Um, so so web forms just didn't sit very well in that idea. And so we had to make a decision about should we this 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 really old project is it worth continuing with web forms. How many people are we going to get to be able to contribute to a web forms project at this point in 2020? And so that actually was a really important decision to say, I just don't think that it's worth, there's, there's lots of parts of this project that are absolutely worth maintaining that should never die because they work and they work very, very well. But that particular part of the project, we, we really have to rethink that because first of all, there's not a lot of people who know it at this point. And there's not a lot of people who know it and would be willing to help. So so what we have to decide here is what parts of this project are worth maintaining and what parts do we genuinely have to let go? And I think that's a, that's a reasonable question to ask yourself. I like software. I like the promises we make with software. I like I like maintaining those promises and I like keeping them. But at some point, it just becomes impractical to maintain certain promises of the software. So we had to make a decision right then because such that was so pivotal to the software that we had to say, we're going to have to abandon this particular part of the project and adopt something else for the for in order for us to continue it and frankly, to even get the help we needed uh, to continue. You know, I'm curious, like with that type of scenario, are you, are there conversations about like, all right, is, is this a permanent change you're going to make or is there a plan to reevaluate what you decide on so that you don't find yourself 15 plus years later going, wow, the decision we made back in 2020, that no longer relevant. Like, is there, there are there conversations about what's appropriate for the near term versus long term or is it more of how do we build something and integrate something that we know that we're going to potentially need to come back and refactor or replace at some, the unknown future, I suppose. Yeah, I think that goes back to your, one of your first questions about the framework, right? So first, I think the selection of whatever framework or architecture or design we're going to build on, is there a, is there a great runway for that, right? So we don't want to build on something that we know is, isn't necessarily going to be here. And then I think after that, I'm saying, can we categorize or compartmentalize, let's say, the the types of decision we're making. So for example, when, when it came to Dustblog, again, Dustblog is a blogging engine I work on. And so what we said about Dustblog is that there's some things that are very specific declarative statements about the, the, the tool in terms of how it was going to interact with a blog post. You blog, and it would create a file about it. That was a really big decision back back in 2003, right? Now, um, so how we pick that up, that how we create that file, how we pick that file up, none of that stuff changed. What we decided to change was everything above the layers of interacting with the file. So how you interact with configuration files, how you interact with each blog post, how you interact with the files that you save on disk, none of that changed. And we said, if we could create an architecture that allowed us to change as little of that, a little of, of the underlying mechanisms of how it worked, and then on top of that, 
how our UI worked, then it didn't matter what UI we picked today because ultimately we separated all the concerns, which is actually one of the fundamental flaws of web forms, right? That it kind of mixes concerns. It mixes the expression of the UI with the business logic that feeds, feeds the UI. And so there was actually quite a lot of work of which parts to push down, which parts to keep up in the UI. And so actually, I think, frankly, the decision to, to separate those concerns was a bigger architectural decision that allows us to, in the future, pivot on whatever decision we made today. So we started thinking about what decision should we make, not just to kind of divorce ourselves of a particular thing, but then to your point, to make sure that it would allow us to make bigger and better decisions going forward. Thanks. You know, I'm curious about, you know, with that being an open source project that's been around for, for quite a while, if someone were like listening, were thinking that they're going to work on a new open source, say blog engine, do you think they need to be making those sorts of long-term decisions for their kind of initial version of something? Or are these the types of things that you would recommend put that off till later when that's actually an issue you need to deal with? Yeah, I think, yes, that's a really good question. So I think you should think about it if you if that's something you have the ability to do. But it's so difficult to really, honestly, it's really difficult to sometimes figure out those long-term questions at the start. And my priority is usually, let's get something out there that people will at least tell you that they're interested in or not, right? Rather than devote massive amount of time to something to, to keep a promise that no one's listening to, right? So, so I, I like to I like to make sure that this is something people like. Um, or, or, I mean, depending on your, the time you're, you're using, um, you may be just using this time because you want to stretch these muscles and that might be an opportunity for you to do that, in which case go for it. But I, I like the idea of let's create something that's, that's usable and let's iterate on that usability um, rather than, invest a, a bunch of time up front. And that's all, again, that's only because I I, I, <laughs> I like to value my time. So I want to make sure I'm creating something that is um, is helpful. And then I start to think about what it looks like to, to keep this going five years from now and, and 10 years from now. Thanks. Do you use the metaphor technical debt at all in your day-to-day -day work? I do. I do. I do think about that a lot. Uh, and I'm more likely, it's, it's funny because I think with the project I'm working on, in my spare time, the way I think about technical debt there is a little bit difficult, different to the way I think about it at work. In, in, at work, I'm much more stricter about creating debt for myself and for the teammates. Whereas when I think about what I'm doing for DOS blog, I'm more likely to take out loans against my future self, right? I'm, I'm more inclined to say, ah, I will take care of this later. Um, I will incur this debt and pay it back a little bit later. Uh, for those listening, you work on the Microsoft VS Code project, right? Visual Studio, yeah. So specifically not VS Code, but yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Out of curiosity for those maybe listening, uh, what exactly does a program manager do on a project like that? What's, what are you responsible for? Yeah, so my a lot of what I do is essentially Microsoft Dev Div Division. We're basically the tools division, and we we take care of all the kind of public-facing tools you'll use, and that include, as you mentioned, VS Code, VS Visual Studio and a bunch of tools in that space. And what we think about, um, we kind of split our, our division into two. We've got an engineering set of engineers and, and program managers, and I'm a program manager. And what I think about as a program manager is representing the community inside engineering meetings. So I'm an engineer myself. I've been engineering for 20 years 
producing software for, for financial services and a bunch of other places for, for years. But I joined as a program manager because one of the things I think that software fails is is sometimes, and I, I always like to use the, the analogy of promises, but we make the wrong type of promises with our software because we didn't ask the right kind of questions. And so as a program manager, I think my job is to find enough vocal people or, or non-vocal people, frankly, and find out exactly how they plan to use the software, how they currently think about the software. And when we're making decisions, engineering decisions, I represent their ideas exactly in the room. I'm not thinking about it. I don't have a alignment to a particular technology. I have an alignment to a customer need and a customer desire. And I want to make sure I'm representing that whenever engineers are sitting down and trying to make a decision about what to do next. Um, so for me, for me, the, the, it's, it's really about representing the customers to our, our ideas. Thanks for that distinction there between the Visual Studio and, and the, the Code app, for example. Um, how closely do those teams work together in terms of their products? So, so yeah, we do. I think we, we are ultimately trying to make sure that we are, we, we're actually going after two slightly different, I'd say slightly different uh, markets, but certainly we lend from each other in terms of ideas and concepts. At the heart of it, they both have really kind of different de- debugging engines. Certainly, I would say VS Code is much more lightweight editor and has a, I'd say, probably a a much more straightforward debugger. Visual Studio being a bigger product, a much longer-lived product, much more complicated debugger. It's able to do probably a little bit more when it comes to diagnostics and debugging. So kind of tools on two different spectrums, really. I think you'd start, I think in a spectrum of things, I would say there's, there's, you know, Notepad. (laughs) There is some editor that's given you kind of plugins and giving you a bit more feature sets and then you have on the far end you have the kind of like a more enterprisey type visual studio where folks are kind of producing software at scale probably i think that's the kind of rough way i kind of like to think about it so there's this kind of crossover in in everything right there's something i'm going to probably need from a simple notepad editor that's very very useful i don't mean to malign notepad and then vs code kind of sits in the middle and it kind of is lightweight you can open it in a second you can start your editing of you know your javascript files or what have you but then if you've got these massive projects with lots of different concerns and intersecting um, dependencies now that's probably more like you're going to probably need or, or, or you should be thinking about at least uh, how visual studio could help we'll be back with our interview with mark in just a moment Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Mark Downey. Is it safe to assume that Visual Studio has its own fair share of technical debt? I know you kind of touched on that it's a big it's a big project and it's been around for a long time. I mean, I remember using it a long time ago. I'm sure it's had some definitely some iterations since I last touched it in like 2002. So I can't speak to the debt. I can speak to the size, right? So the the one thing that shocked me, I, I've been at Microsoft now for two, coming around to two years this November, and the thing that really surprised me was how massive the code base is, which 
So you've got these teams of between, you know, uh, two to 12 engineers, each with a particular speciality, all kind of interacting with Visual Studio, all needing to communicate with each other to make sure we are kind of pushing forward at the right cadence and doing the right things and if, and an improvement I make actually benefits somebody else in their space. So um, what shocked me was the complexity of such a such a large piece of software and how it's almost like um, you've got 20 small startups talking to each other constantly and moving a product forward. So, so yeah, I can't speak to the debt. I think I would need somebody a bit more into the, the, the code side to speak to that, but I can, the size I can absolutely speak to. I know that um, when I make a, you know, if, for example, if I speak to somebody in the Roslyn team who's, uh, who's fundamentally concerned with .NET and, and the changes they make will have kind of a downstream impact on me. And I need to make sure that I'm constantly talking to those folks. So, so just in terms of size, and what I know about debt, I can only assume that there is some, some, some in there at least. How do how does a team when you have all these different teams working together? Is there are you do you have much exposure? Catalogs that the that type of work, those maintenance, technical debt type issues within their teams. How do they do you know how, have a good sense of how they prioritize that? Yeah. So so I think what what usually happens uh, with Visual Studio is we release. Like, like, well, I'll, if I kind of kind of speak through how we kind of release a particular feature. So with my group, we have several previews that kind of um, help us introduce a new idea and a new concept to everybody. So we actually have a site, this developer site, that we get in ideas from the community. And, or they'll send us and tell us there's bugs on. So we have a developer community site. They'll tell us there's an issue or they'll tell us there's a new feature. So then when we go to execute on that particular feature or bug, we are presenting that first to the community and to the everybody via the previews. So the, when we're presenting these, these kind of options and these features through the preview, we want, we're not necessarily as strict about what that kind of, how that fits in with the grander picture and how that will look like in its final iteration. So there may be a little bit of debt there, right? But what we get with the preview is an opportunity to talk to the customers via the actual product itself. And then we get to see, well, did this actually solve the problem? And and the reason why we kind of are willing to kind of deal with a bit of debt there, because we may actually, even though I'm here as a program manager, we still may get that answer completely wrong, right? Um, I, you know, I'll interview a dozen engineers and they'll tell me one thing only to realize that they were kind of some edge case that really wasn't, isn't representative of anything, right? So what we do is we say in this preview, we're willing to take on a little bit of debt. We make him take on a little bit more than we should. Now, I would have to say not more than we should, more than we should normally would if we knew this was a solid idea. And we'll say, does this work in the way you think it works? And they'll say, tell us yes or no. And if it works, then by the time we get to the release or we'll make a plan for another release to make sure that we've, we've shored up everything associated with that. Um, again, that just allows us to not spend as much time on a problem that we're not sure if it's been it's solving correctly. Or we'll make sure that we'll, we, we kind of just take a loan, like I say, against the future. So being able to do that, kind of get a concept out there, get some feedback, and then, then you can do your refactoring and and like okay, this we're, we're on the right we're on the right path. Maybe there's a few tweaks we need to make. 
or as you said, maybe you're completely wrong. Let's let's yank it right and like let's start again. Or that we're not going to go forward on this idea. That's some good advice there. Out of curiosity, when um, when you're thinking about you know managing and like when it comes to like your open source project that you, you DOS blog, for example, how how are you going about managing technical debt in that type of project? Do you is that something that the public open source community can people can go look at the here's the backlog of things or the things that usually just floating around in your the developers' heads occasionally gets put into some other an issue somewhere in a tracker or so I'm out on GitHub. I am constantly creating issues. I realize I'm constantly creating debt even when I don't mean to. It's like having a credit card and not realizing. Like I have a debit card and a credit card in my wallet, and I sometimes pull from the wrong one. And I do that all the time when it comes to coding, right? So I'll do, I'll make a decision only to realize a few months later that actually that's, you know, the long-term implications of that particular decision are going to be with me for a long time, and I need to figure out how to to get rid of it. So I constantly put things in my issue backlog and I actually more recently, I've been been more deliberate about marking them for the community to take care of if they want to and kind of trying to communicate, not just to a future version of myself, but to everybody in the community, hey, this is an issue. If you want to take it on, you can. And this is the reason why I had it. And I'll try to mark those up and give people a chance to kind of either comment on it or, or decide if they want to take it on themselves. It's been interesting because with a, a product like DOSBlog, which has been around for a long time, people will recognize, especially people who've worked on this project a long time ago, I've kind of taken on the, the mantle of this much more recently. So within the last four or five years, um, it was the project had essentially kind of reached completion and folks had kind of gone their separate ways and it was kind of left alone it was and I decided actually I like this project I use it but I want to see keep keep going so on taking it on I guess we now at this point I still get feedback from those original members who who were using the product or contributing to the product and they still have very much strong opinions about what it might look like or what it should look like and so it's, it, I find that interesting as well, because not only do I have a debt to the actual product and putting into it, but I think I have a debt to the people who originally worked on to make sure that I don't go too far away from the ideas and the features that they're used to. So a lot of people who use the old DOS blog are now using the kind of new DOS blog. So I think about debt not only to the product as I'm creating it, but debt to the original concepts of the product and how I can either fulfill those debts or, or literally abandon them if that's, a, if that's a good idea. It's interesting the way of thinking about it. And you also, you were saying promises and it's like the software made some promises at one point and are those going to be deviating? And I, I have a couple of open source projects myself and uh, I'm not actively as involved in them now as I was five to 10 years ago. And so we have other people working on them primarily. And so there's occasionally there'll be conversations about making some bigger changes like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like that's going to, that kind of deviates from like my vision for the project, but I also try to have way up that balance. I'm like, but I'm not the one day to day dealing with the project. So it's like, how do you, it's, it's an interest. So being on the other side of that, being with the person that's like maybe the, the original developer on something, I could, can see how that could be a little bit of a, a fun dance, I suppose, to try to cater to the users, the, the original creators and the future direction of the project, trying to find some healthy balance in there. You can't make everybody happy, I suppose. 
I know that I've, I was looking through your, your, your own blog and I know you had mentioned like there, there's some articles in there and one of them was about, you mentioned, uh, labeling, uh, GitHub issues with certain types of labels to, for like say newcomers, good for first pull requests, I think might be one. Do you participate in things like Hacktoberfest at all with, on that type of project or? You know, I haven't to this point. Um, but I, one of the things I, I do want to, I, I want to make sure I'm focused on is making making open source a bit more approachable and friendly, especially in the .NET community. I was, I think I'm always kind of critical of, of whatever community I am to make sure that we are as open and as welping, welcoming as we can be, um, that we are as supportive as we can be to new to new, to, to new developers, to, to folks from maybe differing backgrounds. And so I've been really trying to make sure that I am labeling and letting people know, hey, if you want to come in here, knock around for a little bit, make a mistake, feel free to do whatever you want and get my opinion or get some feedback on your .NET contributions. Feel free. This is, it's perfectly safe to do so here. Um, so yeah, I, I created a couple of blog posts just to kind of let people know that, hey, this is this is a good environment to get some feedback, to, to kick around the tires on an open source project. A judgment-free zone. I'll just be. I'll just try to help you make the change, and I think that that on-ramp to to our community is going to be critical, frankly, for its future. Um, I, I would like you know more folks who have kind of gained success to make opportunities for success for others. So what I think about now is before I used to fix the the tiny bugs myself at speed. I used to just go through and I've kind of grown comfortable with them existing and with them being there to make room for other people. Because I think that's frankly more important to make a community that you you are that you want to exist in yourself. So so I've been really thinking about that an awful lot recently and trying to make sure that um, I'm making that on ramp. Because I I think there's tons of people who would enjoy this community who would love the tools we've got in this community and would be success really successful in this community but may have been turned off by barriers that were frankly unnecessary to put up in the first place so i'm really i have been trying to be much more cognitive or much more uh, cognizant excuse me of that barrier hi there Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. There's almost like two user groups for like open source projects, I think. There's the uh, the people that are going to use the project and maybe install it and, and take, you know, use it day to day, spin up a blog and with your with that software or whatever the project is. And then there's the people that might contribute to the project. They're probably using it, but the ones that actually like, okay, I'm actually going to dig into the code. I want to, I want to make some tweaks to this, or I want to propose something or I want to help fix a bug or improve the documentation. And so for like my open source project, one of my projects, we've, I've always had a very 
focus on like, I want this to be really tailored to being really easy to install and useful for people that are kind of new to the industry. But contributing to the code is like, like, well, maybe there's more complexity in there in some ways, but how can we make that easy to as well? And so you, it's interesting here, you talk a little bit about how trying to make sure it's, you're, you're making it uh, accessible to a variety of people and different backgrounds and such. And and it might be their first time, and there's like you know we have interns coming in and out of my company you know, on a regular basis, and it's one thing I'm always encouraging, like definitely try to find a way. Like you don't have to contribute to open source. There's not, like that shouldn't be the reason why someone hires or doesn't hire you or even consider like that. It's a voluntary thing you're doing with some of your time. Maybe your company can pay for you to do some of that, on, you know, on, the, on at work or whatever. But it's the, I don't feel like the getting the green grid of your GitHub profile is like any way, shape, or form should be shouldn't be the goal. It's, it's also not a bad thing if that is your goal and you want to do that. But it's just more of a don't set that expectation expectation there. I think it's just more of the the open source community. I think has had a lot of pride in the fact that they've been able to do a lot of these things over the years without necessarily a lot of support from the bigger companies like Microsoft. Per, the perception of that back in the day, because I know that Microsoft in the early era of the you know there's definitely it's been an interesting thing watching that transition happen over the last couple of decades, and it's like the, the fact that we're talking about open source projects and Microsoft, you know, now and like it's. Yeah, you know, like I was gonna say, like with uh, like VS or uh, with the with the code project, in particular, one thing um, we run a. So I work in the Ruby on Rails community as far as frameworks go, and uh, we my company runs a, a survey every every two years or so, and code is now the most popular editor in the Ruby on Rails community, and like a third of all the people over two thousand people responded said they're using code now, and I was like, wow, I'm like that's so impressive, uh, considering that. It's not necessarily historically been a Microsoft environment necessarily. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and it speaks to I think how having a certain type of openness is attractive to folks. And um, surprise, surprise, right? That uh, obviously, like I said, my 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 tenure with Microsoft started about two years ago, so I the perceptions that were out there I absolutely shared, right? But then something happened a few years back where. They started started by just simply coding in public and not really accepting pull requests. And then they started accepting pull requests and really became not just uh, source open, but open source, right? They really became a, a company that was kind of developing ideas and and really pulling into the community, which is actually what one of the reasons why I joined is because I saw how that customer focus just was was actually made business sense to them but actually became a part of the ethos of how we're going to be customer centric look for opinions of the of the community what what are they saying how are they using our product does this make sense and so that that um i think that attitude has has kind of been beneficial because the attitude toward microsoft as being this massive hostile company has kind of changed really and it's it's not easy to change a kind of that kind of perception um, and to see them do it is is something I'm I'm definitely very proud of. Yeah, that, it's 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 interesting. I'm always kind of curious. About, I don't want to dig too far down this path necessarily, but there, I think there's there's almost like a another way of thinking about it. How it's changed. It's like there's almost been like a generational change because we're talking about a couple of decades too. So it's a you know I, I don't know what you know the world was like you know in the 80s and 90s as a software developer necessarily. So, but. You know, Microsoft's always been around, and so um, it's been it's been good to see that how they've been able to become good contributors and members and participants in the open source community. So, 
I'm curious if, you know, for, as you, you know, you're touching on some ways to make things more accessible. Could you, for those listening, they might have an open source project with some level of usage of their, you know, from by other people and some contributors, but they're not feeling like they're really getting many contributions from new people necessarily that they didn't already know. What advice could you offer them on how to like start reaching out and to, to foster that sort of community? Okay. So I think one of the things I, I think I would promote is Make sure that you've labeled your things, labeled all your issues appropriately. I, I would be deliberate about creating issues. I'd be deliberate about labeling them, and I'd be li- deliberate about communicating. Hey, this is this is for the community. This is, in fact, if I've got people here who would normally pick up issues, I don't want you to take this issue. I, I literally labeled a few of mine and said in the messages, actually, this is for folks who are new. So, so don't do this if you are, I literally don't want you to take this. You're a regular contributor. I know you're brilliant. And I know you could do this in five minutes, just as you, you know, this evening, but I actually don't want you to do. I want, I want this to be a issue that somebody who's new can take on. And, and, and my plan, essentially my plan is to keep them around for a few weeks, see if somebody wants them. And then after that, they may expire, but then create an, another set of, for folks who, who want, may want to come in and contribute in some small way to build their own confidence. You, you mentioned interns earlier. And I think one of the things that's really powerful about, about intern programs is that it, it's, a, it's a confidence builder to, to, to show people that they actually belong. It's, it's really not about getting cheap labor. I hope that's not what it's about, but, it, but it's about showing people that they belong by actually sitting them in the job, right? And so that's what my hope is that we can show people you actually belong in this community. You have a place here. So, um, yeah, just, just being mindful is the only thing I think that stops some people from, from, from joining communities that you, you create. And I want to, I want to restress that point about how important it is to just make sure that people, especially interns, we we're wrapping, we have tomorrow, it's like a Thursday right now. We have tomorrow's a Friday uh, when we're recording this and we have a couple of interns that are wrapping up and like the big thing for them has been, Oh, I, I do belong in this. Like, this is something I can do. They're very intimidated when they start. Uh, I don't know how your experience with interns have gone, but we're, we've tried to be very intentional like about the fact that like we're going to put you on projects that already exist because that's rarely does someone ever join a project and get to be there day one and be part of the framework decision-making, start writing a new code in a lot of software development boot camps and, you know, programs are a lot of focus on learning the fundamentals and the basic, you know, building new things usually, not usually digging into something that's been around for 10 years and being like, okay, where, what, this is, what's going on here? And trying to piece together this bigger thing. But within, you know, weeks, couple months, they start gaining confidence and that's, that's important for them, I think. And so, so yeah, definitely make sure. I'm also curious if you have any, any things you've learned with, like experimented with, with recruiting people into the project. For example, one of the things that I do on my project is we, I'm always trying to tout the number of contributors that we have. As I'm like thinking this is a subtle way to remind people, like we've had over 1,400 people contribute code to this project that are now, that's in the, you know, in the, in the main branch. Like that's, that's awesome. This isn't like, this wasn't Robbie's project. This was like a community project. And so I'm always wondering if that helped, has helped me gain more traction with uh, the number of contributors that we've had, but I don't know that for a fact. It's just curious if you found some interesting ways to try to pull that to, to build community. You know, actually, I haven't done anything like that. I, I just I just make sure I'm constantly talking and tweeting about my work and getting people to come either via, via my blog. I kind of talk about it on my blog quite a bit. And, and just advertising to... There's lots of different um, communities, 
for example, on Twitter, Code Newbies. There's a couple of other kind of communities where you can say, hey, this is a friendly spot for you to come. Uh, so just kind of finding those communities where folks who are, you know, maybe fresh out of a boot camp, to, boot camp and are looking for something to kind of to, to, to sink their teeth into. Like I said, I think the, the responsibility is ours, right? Those folks who are kind of established to make sure that our community continues to, to exist by presenting opportunities to folks that um, as they come into and, and get close to our community. So, yeah. so a couple of quick last questions for you. Another maybe advice thing from you. Let's assume there's a few people listening who have a large laundry list of technical debt maintenance type tasks with their open source project. And perhaps it's a little overwhelming. Uh, what advice could you offer them on how to just start prioritizing what their team or themselves should be working on kind of next? Right. I think f- for me, um, so I guess it depends on the condition you find yourself in, but make those decisions early that if your product's already out there and you've got some maintenance issues, I think make sure you're kind of dealing with the, the issues that are going to have a long tail, that are going to impact so, so I know it's kind of tempting to, to to kind of fix the veneer, to fix the surface, because that kind of makes looks things look good. But you, if you have a problem that is essentially going, or a solution that will impact the product over the long haul, kind of get get that into the works as quickly as possible. Because ultimately, um, one of the other things that comes with maintaining a product is the idea of it splintering and and necessarily people having different desires of it. So if you've got something big, I'd kind of like to kind of uh, front load that because that decision will lead to other decisions that you'll you'll inevitably have to kind of build on. So I like the idea of front loading my big decisions and making sure that those kind of get the biggest priority with me and actually talk talk to people, blog about the, the, the decisions you're making and why. Um, what I found is that people love to talk about software decisions and given a good environment and a safe environment to talk about it, people will give you really constructive feedback. They'll They'll tell you why one decision may be more important than another. Listening to the community, listening to the users um, is obviously just the very best. You you think you have the best thoughts because you are writing the code, and that's rarely the case. Your, your community has the, always has the best kind of uh, angle on your product. That's some excellent advice for, for folks listening that have open source projects in particular. So what non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? So it's software adjacent, I'll say. I've talked a lot about customers and their opinions, but this customer-driven playbook by Travis Loudermilk and Jessica Rich, um, it, it's heavily influenced towards the software industry, but it's really not so much about software itself. It's about listening to customers. It's about converting the feedback we receive from customers into successful features and successful product, products. It's about the cadence you need to set up to make sure that you're listening to your customers in the right way, that you're asking the right kinds of questions to make sure that you are producing the actual product that they need rather than the product that you're excited about. And I think that's always, always um, again, as, a, as, a, as the person who's doing most of the work on DOSBlog, I know what I want, but I'm also really interested to find out exactly what was there before and what folks in the future might need. So and that needs me sometimes to just ask other people questions. So what this kind of book sets out 
the kind of framework, literally a framework for asking questions, a framework for talking to customers, a framework for gathering feedback, a framework for executing on that feedback, for prioritizing that feedback. So I love that book in as much that it really made in terms of program management, I think if you know if you were thinking about being a program manager and thinking about applying to Microsoft, if, if I can tell you that would be that's a great book to come armed with, to have read and to have kind of looked at and, and invested in. That's certainly, uh, in fact, the authors the authors actually work at Microsoft, uh, um, and and kind of they developed the kind of system internally to us, and um, it's actually a, just a great read in and of itself. Excellent. We'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for everybody. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? So I am I blog at popastring.com, P-O-P-P-A-S-T-R-I-N-G.com. And I tweet a lot. Um, it's technical and non-technical, so decide for yourself if you want to follow me there. But my, my blog is mostly technical, um, talking about, I talk about the products I'm creating. I talk about what I'm creating at work, what I'm creating with the blogging engine DOS blog. So yeah, feel free. Well, excellent. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Maintainable.